Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we're rejoined today by Yasmin Laroche. Yasmin has just finished her tenure as the Deputy Minister for Accessibility in Canada and is on a well-earned break before plunging into the next thing. So Yasmin, welcome back. I'm delighted to have you. I know you've been doing some really great work, but um, maybe you could tell our audience, those of us that didn't watch the first interview, a little bit about what the role was and, and what it was like and, and, and how it changed over the period of your tenure. Thanks, Neil. And I'm, I'm so happy to be back uh, on Access Chat. I'm, I'm just delighted that I can come and, and kind of give you an update on uh, all the work that we've done over the last four years. Uh, so to go back to 2018, that was when my my work started as the Deputy Minister for Public Service Accessibility. And the thinking behind it was the government had just introduced the Accessible Canada Act, a very comprehensive piece of legislation uh, that was going to cover seven key areas in what we call the federally regulated sectors because Canada is a federation and there's a division of powers between the federal government and the provincial governments. And so this was to create legislation that would govern this whole federally regulated sector. And that includes, of course, the government of Canada itself and the public service. And the government of Canada is the largest employer in the country and uh, owns a lot of property and has a huge presence right across the country. So the government wanted very much to lead by example and say, we want to be leaders in accessibility and disability inclusion. And so I was asked to come in and uh, create the strategy and, uh, and then oversee the implementation of the strategy. So the first year was, um, was really all about um, designing the strategy. And what we did was a, a very comprehensive set of consultations and engagement. In the end, over six months, we probably engaged with about 12,000 people. And we did a lot of surveys. We did in-person, we did online to try and understand what were the real, what were the priorities for action? Because you know, strategy can be many things, but you want it to be as meaningful as possible for the people you are serving. And so we did a lot of engagement to try and narrow down what were the key areas of focus that we should be tackling in our strategy. And, uh, and out of all of those consultations and a lot of co-design with the community, we, we, we sent out drafts, we sent out ideas, and we got a lot of commentary. And that culminated in, very, in late May of 2019 with the uh, unveiling of our, of our strategy, which is called Nothing Without Us. And you'll, you'll remember that you know, there was a very conscious decision about the language around that, because of course, coming out of um, the UN convention, uh, the, the mantra has been nothing about us without us. And yet, as you look at the size of the disability community, um, and and I, you know, all credit has to go to Minister Carla Qualtro, who said, "Why, why are we saying nothing about us without us?" And she said, "You know, really, it should be nothing without us because everything is about us." And that really, 
you know, I think that that goes to the heart of what we're trying to achieve, which is that accessibility and disability inclusion isn't an afterthought. It isn't a sidebar. That disability inclusion means that you always consider people with disabilities, no matter what you're doing, and that accessibility has to be built in from the start of anything that you're doing. It doesn't matter you know, if you're designing a policy around trade, if you're designing a policy around emergency management, it means you need to pay attention to, from the start, to issues around accessibility and disability inclusion. And so our strategy was unveiled, as I said, at the end of May in 2019. And then the challenge was, okay, then how do we implement this? And so that's what we spent the rest of our time doing was the was we were in full implementation mode. So Yasmin, you know, we're talking about engaging you know, at, at the at the highest level in government and then with different entities and then with with, with people. You know, I'm sure that's a rather a complex process to dealt with. So uh, I'll I'll do you succeed you know navigating in in all those in all those little uh, rivers where you no know, people have different objectives people have different areas of knowledge and sometimes even people have different political objectives uh, how do you succeed there that's a great question antonio and and to go a little bit um geeky on on you um i it's it's about governance it, and 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 that's you know it's a strange word perhaps to be using in the context of a discussion around accessibility, but really what we were talking about was culture change, right? We were actually trying to change the culture of a huge institution, and to do that, you really do have to get the governance right. Because think about it, you know, there was me, the deputy minister, and a very small team of people. I think at our max we were twenty-five people. You can't do culture change if it's just that small group. Culture change means a whole lot of people have to have a stake in what you're doing. And so you have to design a governance structure that allows you to start connecting with the people who are actually going to help you to drive the change. You know, we were a small team and I didn't have any, I call them the policy levers. I, I wasn't the lead for any of the key policies that actually were necessary to drive the change and to help advance the strategy. For example, I didn't own the HR policies for the Government of Canada. I didn't own the procurement policy, nor did I own the IT policy or the service policy. So there are all these pieces that were critical to the strategy but other people were the owners. So they had to be part of our governance table. So I had, I had something called the Deputy Minister's Accessibility Group, and I pulled together the key deputy ministers in the government of Canada, and these are the senior leaders of the organization, to be part of my team, as it were. They were part of my governance table. And we had and we had similar mechanisms going flowing throughout. So at every level, we had people engaged. We had technical working groups that were actually looking at the how of what we were trying to accomplish. And of course, a constant, constant engagement with the community of people with lived experience. 
I'd say the other thing that's really important, when we designed the strategy, we also, our strategy wasn't built just out of good intentions. It was, it also started from a basis of evidence. So what we did, you know, as part of our homework leading up to the strategy was looking at all the data that we had, all the data points that would give us a better sense of where the challenges were and, and, and could actually give us a baseline that, that would allow us to start to measure progress. So for example, we have an annual, um, Public Service does an annual engagement survey of all of its employees. It has a very, very high response rate. And it's a very, it's a detailed questionnaire. And, um, and, and what we discovered out of that questionnaire were a few things. First of all, uh, public servants with disabilities had the highest reported rates of harassment and discrimination of wow. any. So, so that was, so, you know, that enabled us to probe and we did follow-up surveys then to try and understand what that was. And, and we discovered that really one of the biggest pain points was workplace accommodations. That's what we call it in Canada and in North America. I believe you call it adjustments. Um, yes. But we, we, that was the, what the single biggest driver for that area of concern. Um, it took too long to get the necessary adjustments. Every time you change jobs, you had to relitigate to get what you needed. So, and this is not uncommon. I know that you are both very familiar and I know that your, um, you know, the viewers are very familiar. This is not uncommon. This is a, something that we see around the world. Uh, we don't do a very good job of providing people with the tools that they need to succeed in their jobs. So we knew that that was, that was a big issue and we, we knew we were going to have to tackle that in a very, very proactive way. So that was one area. We also knew, for example, um, we knew that IT was a huge issue. And again, that's kind of linked to the workplace adjustments, but um, we have a multiplicity of programs and systems and hardware and software across the public service and um, a lot of it not accessible at all. And so we knew that that was going to have to be another area of focus. Of course, the built environment is, is, in air, is a huge area, a huge priority for people. Um, and, you know, we, we had a lot of feedback in terms of the lived experience of people engaging with their built environment. And so, so you, you, you start with evidence and then you set some goals and you, it, it's really, really important to be able to measure. Um, the government had set as uh, a, a target that they wanted the public service to hire 5,000 new employees with disabilities by 2025. And so we were able to work with our colleagues at the Public Service Commission to try and try and understand, okay, what would it take to get us there? How do you design a model that allows you to, under, to take into account what we call the churn. So people, people coming in, people leaving, how do you actually get to a net increase of 5,000? And yeah. uh, yes. I need to ask you a question right on in that area. So sure. government wants to hire more, but was the environment in the, in the space of public service in Canada open to actually let people who are not identify themselves with a disability to, to identify themselves because sometimes you want to hire more but you already have people there 
who are not self-identified. How you handle that part? Apologies for that, but I think- No, I think that's a really good question, Antonio. I think that's a great question. And in fact, you know, it's both. So you, we know, so we had data that showed that um, our hiring rate of people who self-identified with disabilities um, was about 3.4% a year. Um, that's not going to get you, that's not going to get you to 5,000. And it's not going to get you to what in Canada we call uh, work labor market availability or workforce availability, which is uh, a measure that is often used to determine like where you are in terms of representation. So, um, so our, our, our workplace uh, availability or workforce availability measure of people with disabilities is about 9%, it's 9.1%, let's say. Well, our representation rates were 5.6% when I started. And you're right, Antonio, that's the people who self-identify. And we know particularly people who have less visible or invisible or perhaps episodic disabilities may not choose to self-identify. Um, I mean, there's always a, a you know, there's, there's a lot of fear about self-identification, the fear of reprisal, the fear of being stereotyped. And so that, that is an issue. That is definitely an issue. Interestingly, so we have two ways of measuring and there's a, an annual formal process and it's actually required by law. We have something called the Employment Equity Act and federally regulated institutions have to report on their representation rates of key groups. And so there is a formal process that each of or these organizations goes through. So our representation rates come from that but if you contrast, because we also asked people to self-identify in our engagement survey, and there was a gap of at least 2% between those two. And, and the reason, I think, is that the employee engagement survey is completely anonymous. And so, so you get people perhaps more willing to disclose. So you're right, Antonio. I don't think we have a really good understanding yet of what our true representation rates are, but I also know that we don't do a good enough job of recruiting people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we knew we had to put attention and focus on that. And so there were programs that were designed, um, apprenticeship uh, apprenticeship programs, a lot of focus on student hiring. Um, so a lot of different initiatives. And what we were able to do was we were actually able to develop metrics for every department in the federal government. And, and we can share, we could then share those data with the leaders of those organizations to say, okay, here's where you are. Here's where you need to be if you're going to actually help move the dial on representation rates and meeting that target of 5,000 net new hires. So again, data are hugely important to this. You need evidence, you need to be able to show people because it gives you something concrete. That was really, really, really important. And um, and so um, why don't I stop there? And I'll, I'm, cause I'm sure you guys have more questions for me. I definitely do. So I, I think that the challenges that, that you have talked about are certainly not unique. They, they exist in all organisations and, and we've experienced similar things within our own organisation where we're running our sort of accessibility programmes in terms of 
disparities of disclosure. And, and we've got a great case actually where, uh, and I, talking to the point that you just made about people being more prepared to disclose in certain circumstances than others. We have a colleague of mine who is clearly visibly disabled, who is the workers' council representative for disabled people, but refuses to register officially as disabled because he feels that that then puts him in a position where he's getting special favours, not that he he is, but, but that he doesn't want the perception that he's um, getting an easier ride than anyone else. So there are all kinds of different motivations for why people may not wish to disclose. In his, his case, he's, he's, he's obviously disabled. It's his job. He's worked in accessibility, but he still doesn't appear on the official figures. So, so there are all sorts of things that we need to do culturally to, to address this. And I, I still have a job of work persuading him that it's actually in our interest for him to register. Um, and, and it's his interest too, um, because it's more important that it's about him than, than our corporate interest. But I think that every organisation is struggling with creating a a culture where people feel that it is safe to self-ID and and to to to, to have that logged and and even when they're not at anonymous surveys, the fact that they're not going into HR systems also has an impact because we have a disparity between the people that are openly members of our disability networks and the number of people that have input their data into our HR systems. Because mm. those kind of things also, um, people view sort of an official HR system very differently to responding to a survey or be belonging to a network. Can I can I mention something then in that yeah. context? Because I think there, there was something that um, we worked on and I'm particularly proud of it. And, and I think it's, it's just telling in terms of the, the approach that we took. So I, I mentioned, you know, how the one of the biggest challenges is workplace accommodations. And so we designed something called um, a workplace accessibility passport. And it was a, it's it, right now it's still in paper form because it took us a long time to find a truly accessible digital solution. I'll come back to that in a minute. But what's so interesting about it, so sometimes, you know, sometimes people will say, um, well, you don't, you don't, you don't design a, a, like a digital or a paper solution until you've, until you've fixed your broken business processes. We saw the passport as a way of actually driving improvement to the business process, because by using this passport, organizations had to look at workplace accommodations differently because the passport was essentially an agreement between the employer and the employee as to the barriers that they face in the workplace and what the agreed upon um, solutions are. And what is so interesting about the passport is it tells you every step of the way 
This is not about a medical diagnosis. Please do not share your medical diagnosis. This is about the barriers that you experience in the workplace. And so the passport is designed to focus not on, you know, the the thing that bothers, I think, a lot of people with disabilities, myself included, is that you kind of end up in a conversation, which is all about what's wrong with you, Mm -hmm. as opposed to what are the barriers that we've created and how can we eliminate them? Um, so it like, again, getting back to the culture piece, I think that's really a, a key piece. We've been working very closely with the chief information officer for Canada to design the digital solution. And, um, I believe it's going to be ready to launch this fall. And I, I genuinely think this is going to be a game changer because that passport then is something that the employee has forever. It can be updated as the condition changes or as new solutions are found, but it's theirs. And, 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 and so their, their solution will go with them wherever they go. And I think that will help to address a number of things, including the, um, the, the, the low promotion rates for individuals with, with disability in the public service. That, so again, the lowest promotion rates of anybody. And I do believe that is linked back to if I've got the solutions I need here and I don't know I'm going to get them in my next job, why would I even try? I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm safer where I am. So, so uh, Antonio popped in the chat, how to bring that to the private sector. It's something that we have done in certain parts of our organisation and, and certainly other organisations in the UK have done similar things as well. And um, the passport enables people to have that um, mobility within an organization to be able to move jobs without having to start conversations from scratch or with or even have some of those difficult conversations because it's an official document that says these are the the my needs to be able to do my job properly and it's already been agreed it's uh, and, and therefore this is all you need to know to support me to be my most effective self and I don't know why more organizations don't do it, to be honest, because like I'm, I'm looking at your question, Antonio, about the private sector. It's a productivity issue. Like, why on earth would you want to have a segment of your workforce that's not as productive as it could be? So even just like from a bottom line perspective, in the public service, um, but again, like it, you know, we have a different bottom line. Our bottom line is the public interest. But why would you want a segment of your workforce not able to produce and not able to make their best contribution? It just doesn't make any sense. And yet we've, you know, we've allowed a situation to to exist. And I do believe it makes us much less attractive as an employer. So back to the issue of, you know, bringing in 5,000 net new employees. Um, If they're coming into a work environment that's not welcoming, they're just going to turn around and leave. I mean, Canada is like many other countries where, you know, we've got kind of a demographic time bomb. People like me are leaving the workforce and um, there's going to be a huge, there is already a huge competition for talent. And so if you don't have an organization that's welcoming to everybody, then you're not going to get the top talent. That you're that you need. I, I no, at, at the same time, like 
if if you go if go go back to the to the results uh, of of the survey and to the well-being of, of employees you know that's also something important to bring to the table when when people have that that feeling that they can be productive that improves their their their, their well-being who, who somehow even became more important when we all started working from home isolated in this pandemic space who also brought uh, new opportunities and new challenges oh antonio like i i'm so glad you went there um because i you know apropos of our engagement survey and so what was really interesting during covid when everybody was working from home pretty much not everybody there were obviously there were segments of our of our workforce that had to be in the physical workplace because of the nature of their work um but but our the harassment and discrimination rates went down for everybody including people with disabilities so you know it's like that is fascinating isn't it so in other words and if you it, because the 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 survey allows you to drill down you can actually you know ask and what was the major source of your harassment discrimination and you know more often than not it was either my my supervisor or my colleagues and so if you take that out of the equation and somebody's now you know working from home or working remotely and they don't have those daily stressors so that those rates went down across the board I, I you know I think that's interesting but it's also concerning because essentially yeah. that doesn't change the fact that people have prejudice all that's done is remove them from the proximity of prejudiced people or and, it, they may not just be prejudiced yeah. people but it could be like I actually have the setup that I need at home or well, imagine true. imagine if you have like an you know you have a disability that flares and yeah. we know so going back to the pre-covid times we know that the number one request by people with disabilities in terms of accommodations was flexible work arrangements yeah. well you know all of a sudden everybody needed flexible work arrangements like everybody and flexible meaning you know my child is at home now because they can't go to daycare so i can't actually work during normal normal working hours so i'm going to be i'm going to need different working hours i'm still going to be productive but i just need so all of a sudden everybody was in the same boat everybody needed adjustments and it was fascinating to me to see these you know what came out of covid so we had originally a three year plan to migrate we have we had a gazillion different operating and software systems across the public service and we were migrating to microsoft office 365 we were trying we were going to get everybody there that was supposed to be a three year process you know it was it was very rigorous which departments would go first which would be wave 1 wave 2 wave 3 well it was done in 6 months yeah it was done in 6 months and so all of a sudden we had we all had the same tools which is amazing and so everybody then had was had the, the same kind of equipment and and it meant that i hate this expression but it it leveled the playing field for a lot of our employees not just employees with disabilities but everybody was using the same platform so you know it made it a lot easier then to work with your colleagues um boy did we make a great shift to 
to Microsoft Teams and Zoom and, and video, video work. So coming back to my strategy, so we launched our strategy in late May of 2019. A year later, like we were all participating like this online. And in thinking about what that meant from a governance perspective, it made it so much easier for my colleagues to participate in meetings because they didn't have to worry about getting to my office in downtown Ottawa. Like there was just, we, we removed a lot of the friction um, it, from the system. We made it easier for people to participate. And, and I honestly think it helped us to accelerate some of the work that we were trying to achieve through our strategy. So that's one of the unintended consequences of COVID. I, yeah, so I, I we, you know, we work for a large IT company. The amount of rollouts, rapid rollouts of collaboration tools and communication tools that happened at the beginning of COVID was amazing to watch because stuff that would have, as you said, taken three years was done almost overnight. People are sort of throwing the switch and, and it's off. And that had the consequences you talked about of people being able to work flexibly and to collaborate across uh, you know, large geographies without the, the, the difficulties of travel. But it also had other you know, less positive impacts in terms of what that's done in, in terms of the impact on people's um, mental health and well-being and, and the sort of distractedness. Um, as, as someone that's ADHD, I'm easily distracted anyway, but the the sort of constant flow of notifications only increased as part of of, of, of COVID and, and, and the rollout of all of these collaboration tools. And the fact that you don't have the water cooler to have a conversation around anymore means that people set up meetings or, or if everybody's in back-to-back -back meetings, then also the etiquette of waiting until someone's free goes out of the window. So you can be doing something and you're getting someone, you know, pinging you or ringing you or, you know, it, 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 it's almost constant. So I think that there's, there's real definite tangible benefits in terms of you know, the, the changed attitudes to flexibility of working. But also, I think that several years down the line, there are a lot of people that are feeling pretty tired and we need to find, you know, redress that balance. And I'm not talking about the return to the office so much as actually looking at, at the intensity of work. I think that's a really good point, Neil. And I know that in our own experience, what we've been experimenting with what we call hybrid work models. And, mm -hmm. um, and in our own shop, like we really experimented with that. So COVID allowed us to have staff not located in the national capital region. So we had somebody in Prince Edward Island, somebody in Vancouver, somebody in the Yukon, and somebody in Southern Ontario, which was great. Um, the interesting thing about that, and I think from a public service perspective, really interesting is too often we look at Ottawa and the national capital region as like, you know, everybody has to be there if you're, if you're really gonna have a good career. But all of a sudden, we were able to, again, it gets back to the question of where's the talent? And so you're, we were able to find talent that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to find. And I think that's a huge, huge advantage. What we're looking, so, but the challenge then is, 
as you're experimenting with hybrid, where some people are going to be coming back into the office a couple of times a week, how do you how do you create a new work ecosystem that is not going to disadvantage some people? I think that's a really really important point that we need to be working on. A lot of the conversations as we were kind of moving back into some people coming back into the office was, so are we all of a sudden going to be creating two different classes of employees, those who are physically present and therefore have more FaceTime with their managers in person and therefore maybe likelier to get promotional opportunities? What does that do for the people who then, you know, have opted to spend most of their time working remotely? So I think there's a risk there and something we have to be paying a lot of attention to. But I do think it's created a, a situation that has made it much more humane for, for a lot of people to not force them into one kind of work model or another. And I, my great hope is that we don't lose that. Uh, I know that, you know, institutions are funny and there's this terrible tendency to want to go back to the way things were. And my real hope is that we're not going to do that and we will seize this opportunity. Without, uh, without wanting to take too much time of, of your time there uh, and with this topic, I think something that is particularly important for organizations is starting to embed training on how to collaborate, how to communicate, how to community management, because this has been absent from learning and training programs. So I think an, an effort needs to be done here to support leaders, to support employees, to better manage this kind of, this, this kind of uh, uh, realities. So, but, but I, re I'm, I'm, I think myself and you are also very curious to, to learn what have you learned from all this? No, what? Because there are other governments, there are other entities like the European Union, where they're going to a similar journey of implementing accessibility across the different countries. What were the, the big lessons for you during this journey? I'm so glad you asked, Antonio. A um, couple of things I'm, I'm thinking about. So I started, I think, talking about um, starts with evidence, right? You have to understand what the situation is. What is it that you're trying to fix? Number two is nothing without us is at the heart of it. Never, ever, ever do a change initiative without including the people you're trying to help. Like it's uh, like you will not succeed. That's number two. Number three, uh, this is something that actually somebody told me the last time I saw Neil in person in Geneva, don't boil the ocean. Too often, when you're trying to do a big change initiative, you want to do everything. And so I think it's really, really important to, um, it's not just, you know, people use this terrible expression, the low-hanging fruit. There's the easy stuff that you're going to do anyway. But it's really important to focus on what are those key things that will make the biggest difference. That is important. And then you have to be able to measure your progress. I talked about governance. You cannot do a change initiative unless you have other people who are willing to own it and drive it. So never make it the sole responsibility of a small group of people. It has to be owned by the collective leadership and it has to be informed by employees and their views and their thoughts. That's really, really important. Allyship. 
allyship is critical. We're, we're having all these discussions these days around diversity and inclusion and equity. And sometimes it feels like we're almost pitting groups against each other. You know, whose turn is it this time? I, you know, I think back to the Valuable 500, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful videos. And, and sometimes it's like, okay, who is the group du jour or the group of the year? And that's just wrong. You know, we're, we're trying to build a society and a workplace where people can give their best. And so when you eliminate barriers, you're, you need to be looking at everybody. And people who face barriers need to be great allies. But people who face barriers also need, need allies. And sometimes, and this is something really important, it's the people with the privilege and the power who have to be great allies as well. It can't just be the job of the people who are dealing with the discrimination. You need the people with privilege as well. Yeah. So, um, and I guess the last thing I would say is always be ready to adapt and uh, be ready to deal with surprises like COVID which taught us a lot of lessons that we perhaps hadn't anticipated when we first drafted our strategy. And we had to pivot in some areas. So it's that ability to not be stuck and, and recognize that circumstances can change and you need to be able to change with it. So those would be some of my lessons learned, but I am incredibly optimistic about the future of accessibility and disability inclusion in Canada. I think we've made a big difference already. There's still a long way to go, but I'm I'm very, very optimistic about where we're going to go. Yeah, thank you, Yasmin. I, I think that it's clear that there's momentum behind it. We can see you know, real evidence of, of, of progress. And congratulations to you on your four years of, of, of progress along the way and I, I wish you all the best for a few few months of rest and recuperation before we see you pop up and doing something interesting again. Uh, just like to thank my clear text for keeping us captioned and accessible and, and we really look forward to you joining us on Twitter shortly. Can't wait. <laughs>